We're back in 1 John tonight. We've been making our way sort of slowly and steadily through this particular letter. As we have seen, there is much here that we can mine and glean out of John's words. And everywhere what he is doing, this apostle, as he's writing this letter, he's, uh, in, in a, we could say, seeking to bring the faith of these dear beloved ones that he's writing to into a more solid position. He's writing to make their faith firm, to make their faith, we could say, solidified against the wave of false truth, false truth, false doctrine that's been uh, popping up in his day. And indeed, he calls these people children. That's not by accident, of course. He calls them that because they are truly beloved to him. Notice verse number one of chapter two, as he says, my little children. I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And look at verse number 18 as well of the same chapter as we just read. Children, it is the last hour. Go with me to chapter number 3, verse 7. Again, he says, little children. Let no one deceive you. Look at verse 18 of the same chapter. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And on he goes. He's terming and phrasing and calling these readers of his children because they are indeed his dear ones. That's essentially what the word means as John is here writing from a position of intense and deep affection. To these ones who we could almost say are like his grandchildren. In fact, I think what we have as here, especially in this last sort of portion of chapter number two, we have a very sort of grandfatherly tone that comes out in the Apostle John. And I think it's John sort of sensing this 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 idea that his time on earth is coming to a close. John is writing sort of in his upper age. I think he's sensing the moment, the moment he finds himself in in history, but also the moment of the church. And he's sensing this. And so you could almost sense this idea that it's this grandfather getting out the, the very core and deepest truths that he would want to pass on to his grandchildren. That's sort of the scene. That's sort of the scenario, the way in which we can understand these words. Words that John so much, so earnestly wants these children of his to take to heart. He wants them, as we've spoken of in the previous instances, he wants them to know that they know. To know for certain that they are Christ, that they belong to God. And that they possess this knowledge already, as he says in verse number 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. You already know it. You've already come to faith. He's writing to a group of believers who know the truth, that have the truth, that have come to the faith already. And yet, that faith is a little bit weebly-wobbly. It's a little bit shaken by this wave of false doctrine that's come up. And he's wanting them to remember, you already know it, but know that you know it. You see, contrary to... All the supposed wisdom that was being proliferated and promoted by those false teachers that John was taking to task. There was no amount of extra knowledge. There was no special uh, sort of necessary insight or revelation that they needed to have in order to become Christians to receive salvation. It was just belief 
Repent and believe, as the apostles said, as we can look everywhere throughout the book of Acts. Christians, I think we could summarize essentially what John has been saying mostly up to this point. But I think mostly throughout this letter, we can summarize it with John just saying, you are a Christian if, you, uh, if and only because of Christ. Christians are Christian because of Christ, essentially is what he's saying. Not because of an extra ceremony or an extra standard or an extra experience that you could have. And that's what was being promoted by the false teachers. We would call them Gnostics. Gnostic teachers. These ones who were saying there's extra knowledge. There's extra experience. There's extra insight that you can have. That you have to have in order to truly receive salvation. It's not just by word. It's not just by faith. It's other stuff. It's extra stuff. There's other things that you have to have in your arsenal. And John is saying no. You already have the knowledge that you need. You can know that you know that you belong to Christ because why you have the word already. As he says again, you have been anointed, verse 20, by the Holy One and you have all knowledge. Again, notice what he says. I write to you, not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it and because no lies of the truth. You already know it and you already have it in front of you. You know But no, no, that you know. And that's his endeavor. That's his purpose in writing, we could say, is to remind and reinforce these believers with the solid rock truth, the solid ground faith that comes in Christ. The one who is God come in the flesh. This is his burden throughout this letter. And I think it's important to keep that in mind as he's uh, sort of writing in this particular chapter. Because... And especially in this particular uh, uh, passage that we come to tonight. Because as we've noted, this audience that he's writing to is a church. It's a group of believers. It's not a group of unbelievers, as he says. But it's a group of those who know the truth. And his purpose behind writing is to comfort them. But it's interesting that his method of comfort is to warn them about the wave of false teaching that's already popping up in their midst. These, again, these Gnostic teachers, these ones who belonged especially to the school of this false teacher named Serenthus, who was advocating all of these other ideas regarding spiritual awakening and spiritual insight and mysticism and all those such things. Uh, Those are the ones whom John is particularly calling out, but he's talking to the church to just get rid of all that, to ignore all that, and to cling to what they heard from the beginning. But I think what's interesting is that he takes this This argument, we could say, this address against these false teachers, even a step further uh, by calling them a particularly sort of, we could say, offensive and scandalous name. He calls them antichrists. Did you notice that in verse number 18? Notice as he says, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that antichrist is coming. So now many antichrists have come. Therefore, know that it is the last hour. Essentially, he's connecting the two. He's referring to those Gnostic teachers, those who have been promoting the idea that Jesus was not the Son of God, that, 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 that Jesus was not the true Messiah, that you needed extra knowledge along with what Jesus did, and all those sorts of things, all those false ideas, those really erroneous ideas that they were trying to promote as truth. And now he's connecting them with, we could say, the, the, the affirmative article, the Antichrist. The one whose coming would signal the end of days. 
You can imagine how serious John wrote those words, how solemnly perhaps he wrote those words, but also how sort of eyes wide open this would have been received by the church as it's not just a group of guys who are off base. It's a group of false teachers who have now aligned themselves with the Antichrist himself. That's what John is here saying in verse number 18. There's a lot going on there. But John's comments here are not sort of unheard of. They're actually very common within the teachings of the church. The apostles and the disciples, of course, um, were given a warning by Jesus himself uh, during his ministry of, about what would signal the last hour. And he tells them about this very thing. Go with me to Matthew chapter 24. Because I want you to see that what John is here writing about is no sort of revolutionary thing. It's something actually that he perhaps heard and remembered from his very own Savior. Go with me to Matthew chapter 24 and look at verse number 23. 24, 23 of Matthew. Jesus is speaking and he says, Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs And false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather Prior to that great moment that we would perhaps know as the abomination of desolation, which is when that very nefarious man, the very real Antichrist himself, would come and sit on the throne of the Lord himself. There would be, as here Jesus says, a spirit of Antichrist would spread through the rising up, as he says here, of many false Christs, false prophets who would prey on Hearts of men and women, as he says, even the elect, even those who would believe, even the church, they would become prey to many of these false teachers who would say, look, look at the signs and the wonders that I'm doing and here is Christ. And he compares them, did you notice? Jesus does, to vultures. (laughs) Not a very lovely image. Not a very uplifting image of these ones who would seek to prey on the salvation and prey on the souls of men and women. Deluding them into following them through crafty and cunning talk about the knowledge of Christ and his coming. But whatever knowledge that these false Christs would presume to have, all that they would speak is nothing but counterfeit doctrine, counterfeit truth. It's not knowledge that comes from the spirit of Christ. It's made up. It's, it's man-made. It's, it's their own wits and wisdom. It's, it's bogus. It's fiction. And it arises out of man's own elevated intellect. And here Jesus is, is giving his disciples a warning. You can know that my coming is near. Because there's going to be many false Christs that rise up. And who are weaponizing we could say. This quote unquote knowledge. This knowledge that says that here Christ is. And it leads people astray. It deceives them. From staying with the Lord and actually going after Antichrist. Now, and it's interesting that here John is here making that connection. And this is, I think, what he's connecting it to. 
Just like Jesus is saying these false Christs would be like vultures. Now John is saying these guys who are teaching like vultures. Look at, they're the Antichrist himself. <laughs> or at least his, his disciples. So you see now John in 1 John chapter 2 is making quite a statement. Even though these Gnostic teachers would perhaps never dare, never dare dream of saying that they were taking part in what the Antichrist would come and promote. John is saying that's exactly who they are. That's exactly who they are by swindling all of the assurance that the church has, all of the faith that those who belong to the church has. They've done nothing but what? Share in the spirit of Antichrist. As he says again, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. It's a bold declaration. Strong words. And I think this... This notion that there's many antichrists, many vulturous false teachers that have arisen. This itself, as John is here saying, is this is a precursor to the coming in of the last days. Which is itself something that the apostles talked about. And in fact, go with me to another instance. It's not just John. Go with me to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2 where Paul talks about the same thing. The same idea. 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2. Um, let's read. Actually let's just read in verse 1. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 1. Notice what Paul says. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And our being gathered together with him. We ask you brothers. Not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Pause right there. This is exactly what Jesus was talking about. Here, Paul is talking exactly about what Jesus talked about back in Matthew 24. That idea that there would be false Christs who rise up and say, look, here Christ is. And Paul is saying, don't be alarmed by this. All they're doing is trying to deceive you. Let no one deceive you, he says in verse number three, in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, a.k.a. the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Here, Paul is reminding them, I've told you about this before. Don't be alarmed by those who get up and say and have large crowds and and point to you with great dynamic words and great eloquent speeches about this is the coming of the Lord. You will know when it's happening. And I've told you there's going to be something that precurses, that, that preludes all of that coming in of the last days. And it's going to be this one who sits in the place of God and calls himself to be God. That's the Antichrist performing that great abomination of desolation acts. Notice what he says in verse number 6. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. And bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. 
The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Here Paul is talking about that one. He's talking about the Antichrist who is participating in nothing but the activity of Satan and working that within the world. And Paul is here saying that God is is going to allow a strong delusion to descend, a mighty wave of, of deceit and error would come and proliferate out of the mouths of these false Christs, seducing the masses into the doctrines of, yes, Antichrist himself. And this strong delusion is not sent to deceive those who might believe. It's actually to reveal those who have already been deceived. That's what this strong delusion is. It's like a litmus test of faith. It reveals what's already there. You see, that's what this delusion is that Paul is here referring to. It's like a a piece of litmus paper that you put in water to test the acidity of that solution. It doesn't change the solution. It reveals what's already within that solution. That's what this delusion is. The rising up of lawlessness, of the teachings of the Antichrist. They reveal what's already in the heart, which corresponds to what John says in in 1 John 2, 19. All of this, I think, is in keeping with what John is here saying. As he says, they went out from us, because, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. This is what he's saying. They've already been revealed to not be of us because they've already gone out. It's no light thing what these Gnostics were doing. They were unsettling the faith of those who belonged to churches and fracturing the fellowship of the body of Christ. And yes, even even worse, they were associating themselves with that horrible, deplorable Antichrist. And in so doing, they were revealing and evidencing who they were really for. Who their allegiance was actually to. By what they were doing. They went out from us. They weren't walking in love. They weren't walking in light. As John has here been talking about already, they weren't following after the path that was laid out by Christ. They weren't clinging to that sound word that they have in the gospel of truth that comes through Jesus Christ. They were looking for new ways to enlighten New ways to prey on the souls of men like vultures. They were taking part in what Paul calls the unfruitful works of darkness. That's who these teachers were. Who John here has in mind. They were like bad apples yielding more bad apples. You see, I think what John is really referring to, we could actually go to another passage. Actually, go with me to John chapter number 15. This idea that there's this Litmus test of faith, we could say. It reveals what's within our hearts. I think John has talked about this before. And I think it comes out nowhere better than in John chapter 15. Because I think what he's almost referencing again also as well here is this 
this passage that, John, that Jesus here has where he talks about how he's the true vine. You perhaps are familiar with these words. Let me read them to you. John 15, 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And if anyone does does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. and And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. I love this passage. It's a passage perhaps that you're very familiar with. And it's, it's sort of echoing what we just said. Bad apples yield bad apples. Those who are Christ, as he here is saying, as Christ is here saying, will bear fruit. They will reveal that they are Christ. That's what the fruit proves. The branches that do not bear fruit. Those are the ones who are revealing that they are not of Christ. It's important to note here what Jesus is here saying. That he is the one who enables all of the branches to bear fruit. The branches can't bear fruit in and of themselves. It's only as they are connected to the vine that fruit is born of them. It's only as, we could use John's word, that word abide, that they have any fruit coming out of them, coming from them. As John, or as Jesus says here, those who do not bear fruit, they are dead. And they are useful for nothing but kindling. As he says in verse 5, You are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. And I think the point is, the dead branches have cut themselves off from the vine. That's what makes them dead. They have not uh, abided in the vine that gives them all of the nutrients that they need. They have stifled all of that food that they could then bear fruit from. The point is they are not dead because they do not bear much fruit. The The not bearing of fruit is just the evidence that they've already starved themselves from the vine. The fruit is, we could say, the litmus test of how healthy they really are. It's not what makes them alive. It reveals if they are alive. You see, that's the stress of this passage. It's not necessarily on fruit bearing, but on abiding in the vine, which I think is the same thing that John stresses back in our text of John chapter, 1 John chapter 2. The point of John 15 is abiding in the vine, and those who abide in the vine are those who bear fruit. And it's the same thing as what he's saying in 1 John chapter 2, as those who are staying with Christ are those who are abiding in his word. They're not being swayed. They're not being deceived. And in fact, if you go with me back to our text in 1 John chapter 2, what you're going to notice is that 10 times, 
In chapter number two alone, ten times we see that word abide appear. And each time it carries the same meaning. It's this idea that's, that's conveyed of, of staying on or remaining or dwelling or continuing. And he's saying, how can you know that you know that you belong to Christ? That you are one of Jesus' sons and daughters if you abide in him. If you stay on the vine. Look at verse number 28. And now, little children, abide in In him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in the shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. How do you know that you know? If you're staying on the vine, it's not about the fruit bearing. The fruit bearing reveals that you're abiding. The fruit bearing reveals that you're taking all of the nutrients that the vine provides. You're not being swayed. By what the vultures would have. You're not being swayed by what those false teachers would have you believe. You see this is John's purpose. It's abundantly clear I think. He's earnest for these ones who he calls these ones dear children. He's earnest for them to stay on Christ. To stay in Christ no matter what. No matter how polished that speaker might sound. No matter how eloquent his speech may sound in your ears. And how truthful it might appear. It's going to sound really good to your ears. It might sound really clever. It might sound really intelligent. All of these new teachings. But they were already in possession of all of the knowledge that they would ever need. To fend off all of the assaults of these deceivers. Again notice verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you have all knowledge already. I write to you not because you do not know the truth. But because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. You already have it. Stay on the vine. Abide in Christ. You already have all the knowledge you need. All the truth you need. Through faith and baptism. You know it. You've been anointed by the Holy One. Through his word. Through the waters of baptism. Which means you are already furnished. With all of the knowledge. That you would ever need. To combat all of those false teachings. Of Antichrist himself. That's what he's saying to them. Notice verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But notice what he says. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, it is true and it is no lie. Just as it has taught you, abide in him. When he's talking about you don't need anyone teaching you. What he's talking about is not that you don't need someone explaining the scriptures. He's talking about you don't need some newfangled doctrine to come and expound and enlighten. And give you this mystical experience. And that's how you're going to receive salvation. He's not calling them to some other thing to make their salvation sure and certain. Some other confession. Some other experience. Some other surreal, cerebral thing that they have to have knowledge of. He's reminding them that their confession is sure and certain because Christ is for them. Christians are Christian because of Christ. Not because of our fruit bearing. 
Not because of anything else. We are Christian because Christ makes us his sons and daughters. And the fruit bearing just evidences what? It evidences that we're staying on the vine. That we are actually abiding in the things that he has given us. We're abiding in those things that he has gifted to us. That he has, as he says, anointed us in. And how would they be able to know when that spirit of Antichrist was present in front of them? Well, he explains that to them. Okay, so if you're a Christian that is is scared that you might be deceived... (laughs) How will I know? How will I know if I'm, if I'm stepping away from where Christ truly is? How can I know if I'm, I'm, I'm shutting myself off from, from Christ's truth? How can I know if I'm beginning to stifle the vine? Well, when those who would come and teach you something are blatantly denying that Jesus is the Christ. Notice what he says in verse 22. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made, that he made to us eternal life. You see what he's saying here? Those Gnostics... Those false teachers, they were dead branches already. And their disease was spreading to other branches. Stifling the vine, squelching the fruit. And the telltale sign, the, 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 the most demonstrable symptom of the disease that they were proliferating was what? The denial of Christ's deity. There's nothing more truly anti-Christian than the refusal to confess That Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. Is God in the flesh. And John is here just said it. If you want to know. If you want to know what reveals the dead branches. What reveals the bad apples. Saying that Jesus is not the Christ. And they were advancing that very idea. If you remember what their idea was. They could not get around the idea of Jesus being the son of God. Dying on the cross. So what they would do is they would separate Jesus and Christ. So that Jesus was the man who was, we could say, baptized in the Holy Spirit of Christ at his baptism. And then before he dies, the Spirit of Christ leaves. So the man on the cross is nothing but a man. It's not God suffering for us. It's just a man, Jesus Jesus wasn't God in the flesh. He was just a good religious teacher, a good influencer, we could say, whose teachings then could help us have this higher spiritual enlightenment. That's what they were advancing. That's what they were teaching. And John is saying, have none of that. (laughs) Have none of that. Abide In him. Abide in what you've heard from the beginning. Abide in all those great and glorious truths about who Jesus is that I first taught you. Abide in that, little children. And I think this word is important for us. Especially when we hear recent surveys and recent reports that reveal that 43% of evangelical Christians. Are okay with the statement, quote, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 
I think we talked about that several weeks ago. 43% in a recent survey agrees with that statement that Jesus wasn't a great, or Jesus wasn't God, but he was a great teacher. If that's the case, I can very well say along with John that the spirit of Antichrist is alive and well. And this is not to sort of predict where we are or where we might be on sort of the end, line, end times timeline. That's not, that's not the point of this. That's not what John is saying either. He's not trying to give them sort of insight that they can know where they are and what the future is going to be. This is a preaching, this is a proclamation that is, we could say, a call to arms for this church and for us to take seriously the battlefield in which we are living. And I don't think we often think of it that way, but we should. As Paul talks about in 1 Timothy, that we might fight the good fight of the faith. That's what John's charge is here. He's calling this church to arms, so to speak. You already have the knowledge already. You already have the truth in you. The truth that you know. And we can say, his charge is simply abide in Christ. Abide in him. Don't worry about how much fruit you're bearing. As if fruit bearing is the most critical test to know that you know you are Christ. It's the evidence of your knowledge. But instead, his word to them and to us is this. Stay on the vine. Feed off the vine. And you will bear fruit. And then you will know that you know you are Christ. Continue in what you heard from the beginning. That's his instructions to them. Nothing more is needed for the fellowship with the Father than what is already offered in the gospel of only begotten Son. And that's essentially what he's calling them to. Not some newfangled thing. Abide in what you heard from the beginning. Stay on Christ. Feed on the nutrients of the gospel. That's what will make your faith solid. That's what will make it certain. Therefore, we ought never to move on from the gospel. We don't have to graduate to some other thing. Because the gospel is not the, the ABCs of the Christian faith. It's the A to Z. New York City preacher Tim Keller once said that. The gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian faith. It's the A to Z. We don't need anything more or less. Feeding off of that truth. Feeding off the truth that Jesus' blood covers our sins. And that's what reconciles us and unites us to God the Father. That's the news we need to hear each and every day. And I think it's only as that truth is repeated. As that good news is announced. That our hearts and lives are solidified. And the knowledge that we are Christ. That's what makes us firm. That's what makes us certain. That's what makes us know that we know. Abide in him. Cling to what you have heard, my friends. And you can know that you are Christ. Abide in him. Let us pray.